You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. So on Preaching Source today is Dr. Adam Dooley. He's the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Sunnyvale, Texas. He's earned his Master of Divinity and Ph.D. degrees in preaching, evangelism, and theology uh, from Southern Seminary in Louisville. And he's also taught preaching and pastoral ministry at Tennessee Temple University in in Chattanooga, Boyce College, and Southern Seminary. So he's both a preacher and a teacher of preaching. Brother Adam, welcome to Preaching Source. Thank you for having me today. I'm especially interested in the topic of your doctoral dissertation. The title was Utilizing Biblical Persuasion in Preaching Without Being Manipulative. Uh, You've been a student of the field of rhetoric, and I think you've had a particular interest in pathos, the rhetorical canon of pathos in preaching. Talk to us about that, about the value of of pathos and, and persuasion without being manipulative. Yeah, I actually believe that pathos is the key to avoiding manipulation. If you think of the logos of the text in terms of its uh, cognitive content, we would never think of altering a biblical passage so that it says what we want it to say. When it comes to pathos, however, I believe that we often take liberties with a text that we would never take in terms of its logos. So if you just assume that we're preaching the content of a text correctly, then we're left trying to discern how do we say what we're supposed to say. And I think far too few preachers uh, give enough attention to how we say what we say. In other words, what I'm driving at is that within every text, there is a revelatory mood. There's an emotive structure that we ought to exegete. And after doing so, I believe that we should emulate that as we preach and or try to elicit that same uh, emotional content from our audience as we seek to persuade them. Okay, Dr. Dooley, is, is there a difference between the pathos of the text and maybe the emotions of the preacher about that text, and, and how, how do you put those in the proper priority? Yes, I think that there is often a difference between the mood of the text and the mood of the preacher. Now, I will be quick to say here that the ideal scenario when we are preaching— is that the text has so captivated us and so moved us that our mood and disposition is altered by the force of the text's inspiration. Uh, That's the ideal scenario. Now, having said that, I think every practitioner of preaching can relate to the fact that that's not always what happens. Uh, You know, you can leave a deacon's meeting with a sermon in your pocket on the love of God and feel nothing of the love of God after a contentious uh, meeting. Uh, You can preach uh, Romans chapter 9 where Paul is wishing himself to be a curse for the sake of his brethren and almost be joyful that some people are dying and going to hell. What I'm saying is that 
manipulates the meaning of the text, albeit in a subtle way, because it doesn't communicate uh, the pathos of the author. And what we need to do is bring our mood, our emotion, in submission to the text. So yes, ideally, that will have taken place before we get into the pulpit. But what I am saying without apology is that if we have to choose between fidelity to the text and fidelity to our personality, we must be faithful to the text first. Do you have a working definition of biblical persuasion? How, how would you define that or describe that? Uh, yes, I do. I, I think that biblical persuasion has as its goal uh, both the truth of the text, the glory of God, and the good of the listener. So in other words, I, I think as we persuade that we have to be very careful that uh, our motive is not simply to pull at people's heartstrings, but to be true to the text and pull the emotional strings that the text does for the good of those who hear us. In other words, we're not simply trying to get people worked up for the sake of emotion, but to move them to action. And, uh, you know, that, that requires, again, being bound to the text and eliciting in the audience uh, the same response that we find uh, in the text. We want people to voluntarily uh, yield to a desired response as outlaid, uh, out, uh, outlined for us uh, in the text. So we've got to approach it with a pure motive, uh, and we've got to seek God's glory and the good of those who hear us as we move them to action. How, how does a preacher go about establishing this uh, emotional connection with, with his listeners? Uh, well, it's difficult, and I think certainly what I'm not saying is that there is only one way to communicate emotion. We, we are all wired differently. We do have different personalities, and you can express the same emotion in different ways. And frankly, knowing your audience is, is pivotal to discerning what's the best way to communicate a particular kind of uh, emotion. But uh, I'll give you a good example that I picked up from D. James Kennedy years ago as he was preaching Malachi chapter 3. And the example that he used was that before preaching the text, uh, he stood up before his congregation and said, Church, we have a real problem here. It's come to my attention. Someone has taken a large amount of money from the church. And as he did that, people were looking around the room gasping in horror. And he said then, now, whoever did this, if you will confess now and return the money, we'll forgive you. And, of course, no one did, and uh, there is great strain that is coming over the congregation. And then he said, I did not expect you to respond because the truth is the money that has been taken was not money that was put in the plate and then removed. It was money that was never put in the plate at all. And as he said that, the congregation let out a sigh of relief and began to chuckle. And then he stuck the knife in and said, and from the sound of your laughter, 
most of you think there is no, uh, that there's a difference between those two things. What did he just do? He communicated the exact mood of Malachi chapter 3. That's what I'm talking about. We've got to look for creative ways. It's not always mimicking with the preacher's disposition the uh, emotive design of the text. Sometimes it's creating that in a listener through a powerful story, through an analogy, by setting people up to think you're going one direction and then the other. And some might quickly say, oh, well, that, that is manipulative. Well, if that's manipulative, then so is Malachi chapter 3. Uh, and I, I think we need to look for those creative techniques to evoke that kind of response in our listeners. All right, you've been talking about being uh, the preacher's duty to be faithful uh, to to the mood of the text and the emotion of the text. How uh, how does the preacher faithfully discover the application that is there in the text? Well, I think that the application uh, tends to be more obvious than the mood of the text, although I do think application is uh, determined or influenced by mood, I should say. Uh, I think most preachers, as they consider the application, uh, approach the text asking simply, what does it say, and what is the one-to-one correlation of that? Now, sometimes that will suffice, but most times it will not. I think this is why Haddon Robinson stated that most heresy takes place in application rather than interpretation of the text. Uh, I believe what we have to do to discern application is consider the world that is in front of the text. And, and what I mean by that is uh, you have the text itself, what does it say? You have the historical background, that's the world behind the text. But this world in front of the text is, what are the governing principles that would make this text universal in any setting at any time? And as we apply the text, I think we have to make sure that we are within the boundaries of the world that the text creates in front of itself that make it applicable in any age. So, so those are the questions we have to ask as we consider application. I know that you're one of those pastors who has a great commission heart, and that's something that you have uh, been really diligent in leading the congregation there at Sunnyvale in paying attention to. Uh, how does a pastor lead uh, his church in evangelism and discipleship from the pulpit? Uh, I think that's a great question, and my view on this has changed over the years. Uh, I used to believe that not only could I do evangelism from the pulpit, but that I could uh, do discipleship from the pulpit. In other words, if people would just hang with me and listen to me walk through books of the Bible, I was convinced they would become fully devoted disciples of Jesus. I no longer believe that. And I don't want to be misunderstood because I'm not trying to diminish my view of preaching here. But in my view, preaching lacks one essential ingredient to disciple our congregations. And that ingredient is accountability. People can listen to me and leave, and there's no assurance. There's no framework to help them take what I have said 
and apply it accordingly. So what we've done at Sunnyvale is we have tried to move every member of our congregation into discipleship groups of four or five people that are designed solely for the purpose of accountability. We like to say that we've been educated beyond our obedience. And so in those groups, we're not trying to teach new things. We're just really trying to walk with people each week to ask the hard questions. Are you really praying? Are you really reading the Scripture? Are you really sharing your faith? And what that has done for me in the pulpit is remarkable. Suddenly, I am free not to try to provide pseudo-accountability from the pulpit that, that, frankly, I can't supply there. But instead, I use the pulpit to offer examples of and to give evidence of how walking in accountability can change people's lives. So when I preach, I will often refer to the D group, as we call it, that I meet with every week. I'll tell a story of something that happened. Uh, I'll share a scripture that we memorized together that week. I'll talk about a person that we have led to faith in Christ. I want to use the pulpit to say to people, hey, I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am not doing. And if you want to do these things with us, let us put you in accountability with other believers. So the pulpit really becomes a funnel. It's not an end all, but it's the starting place. It's the gate, if you will, that helps us funnel people into these meaningful relationships where they're actually living out the things that we're all talking about. It has revolutionized uh, my leadership in the church. Adam, on a very personal note, I, I have heard you speak uh, with with great effect on that period of time when your son Carson was diagnosed with leukemia and your family went through his treatment and his struggle. How, how did that very personal uh, event in your family uh, impact the way that you preach on the doctrine of suffering? Well, I, I would say it completely changed it. Um, I will confess that before Carson's sickness, which, which if I could just say parenthetically here, it's been three years since his last chemo treatment. He's completely cancer-free. He's in third grade, doing wonderful. And we're, we praise God for that. But we had three rough years where he was getting chemotherapy every week. Uh, we did not know if he would live or die. And I found myself in, in deep waters that I'd never been before. My, my life was basically carefree before that. And so the first thing I would say is I am able to preach on suffering with much more empathy than I ever had before. I think there is a genuine concern for people that I lacked before. Uh, I would not, I would have never stated that, but I think I felt that and the energy in interacting with hurting people wasn't there until we went uh, through this valley. And then I would also say, uh, in the context of what we've already been talking about, my ability to engage the text with genuine pathos that corresponded to the text has been greatly enhanced. When Carson was first diagnosed, uh, God really helped me through the book of Job. And I spent six weeks away from the church that I was pastoring at the time 
we were living at the Ronald McDonald House, and I kept reading and reading and reading the book of Job. And what I learned, as so many who have approached that book, is that the question is not, is God real? Uh, the, the, the real question in life is, is God enough for us when the bottom falls out? Job found that he was enough, but he did so in the midst of great suffering. He asked why repeatedly. God never rebuked him for that, and he really tried to get his hands around why these terrible things were happening to him in much the way that we were wrestling with Carson's illness. So I say all of that to say this. Uh, When I finally came back to my church, I preached for 18 weeks through the book of Job. And I can tell you in the purest sense, like no other time, I felt that the pathos of this great book of the Bible had so engaged my heart that when I preached that text, not only was I saying what it said, but I was doing so in the same way in which it said it. And and I watched it move our people to action in ways that my preaching had never done before. And so that really taught me of the value of some of these concepts we've discussed. And now when I approach the theme of suffering uh, in the Bible, I really try to share our common experience in a way that doesn't compete with the text, but fans the flame of what is already there. Our guest today on Preaching Source has been Dr. Adam Dooley, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church, Sunnyvale, Texas. Adam, thank you so much for being with us on Preaching Source today. Thank you for having me.